They say that Mother's Day is a day to celebrate and Father's Day is a day to viscerate. If that's a big word, it means slash into many pieces. So, but we're not going to do that today. First Timothy 2 and 8. Can you, can you say this with me, please? I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Let's pray. Father, it's a very short verse, but wow, what a powerful one. Uh, your heart is that men rise, Lord, to a higher calling, uh, to be able to, to view their world as simply a means to doing something great within the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what we're doing, Father, if we're a farmer or factory worker or a teacher or, or retired, Lord, and that, it doesn't matter what the task is, Father, you're calling us to something higher, to connect what we do to that which will do great things for the kingdom of God. And so you have called out uh, men, you've called out in particular fathers uh, to to look at how they're raising children, uh, to look at themselves as how they are men of honor and grace and mercy and humility and looking at you and trying to figure out how to emulate you, which is often a very difficult task in this world. And so, Father, we ask that you'll just bless uh, the word of God, that your spirit would take it, that men would be encouraged today, that they would leave this place knowing that there is something greater, something higher, something more wondrous that they can achieve and, and grasp. And Father, for that, we give you thanks. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, please. Amen. You may be seated. After years of service in South Africa, the famous missionary Robert Moffat returned to Scotland to recruit some helpers for the task. When he arrived at the church one cold wintering night, he was dismayed that only a small group had come out to hear him. What bothered him even more was that the only people in attendance were women. Although he was grateful for their interest, he had hoped to challenge men that night. He had chosen as his text, Proverbs 8, 4, Unto you, O men, I call. In his discouragement, he almost failed to notice one small boy. He was up in the loft pumping that old organ. Moffat felt frustrated as he gave the message, for he realized that very few women could be expected to undergo the rigorous life that was called for missionary service in Africa. But God works in mysterious ways. Although no one volunteered that evening, the young fellow assisting the organist was deeply moved by the challenge that Moffat gave that night. And as a result, he promised God he would follow in the footsteps of this pioneer missionary, and he remained true to the vow he made that night. And when he grew up, he went and ministered to the unreached tribes of Africa. In fact, he became 
one of the most famous missionaries to Africa uh, in himself. Any guess? David Livingston, I presume. David Livingston. Moffat never ceased to wonder that his appeal, which he had intended for men, had stirred a young boy who eventually became a very powerful instrument in the hands of God. My text this morning is not found in Proverbs 8 and 4. But my challenge is the same. It is a call to men to go higher. Now, I know that in some way, there are going to be uh, men who receive this and go, oh, great, another guilt trip, another shame. I'm not what God called me to be. Please don't hear that this morning. That's not what I'm after. I'm not after shaming or guilting. Men don't. They don't respond well to that sort of motivation, but they respond to challenge. They respond to, let's take my hand, let's go up the mountain, let's do something great together, let's conquer something that we've not been able to conquer. Men respond to things like that. And so that's what I'm hoping to focus on this morning. So men, I don't want you to hear shame and guilt come out of me today. I want you to hear there's something more. There's something greater. There's something higher that God wants for you. And if you just take somebody's hand who's a little farther ahead of you and let them help you get up, by the way, because you can't do it by yourself. And all God's people said, please. We never, we're never on this journey by ourselves. We're always looking for someone ahead of us to say, would you please help me get there? But see, that's the whole focus, men. And that is, is that we're not focused on that, And that's where we have to start. We have to start with the idea that there is something greater, that there is something more, and it's something that you should desire. It's something that is going to make your life an, uh, an incredible story, if I could use that language, of how God is working in your life. You know, if no one ever told you that there was something better ahead... You would always be satisfied with staying where you are. And that's not what the scripture is. The scripture is always about saying there's something better. There's something greater. There's something more. Extend your hand. Take it. Find someone who's down the road a little farther than you are and ask them if, they can, if you can join them. That's what Father's Day is about. It's about men reaching back to men, about men reaching forward to other men and seeing if, if we can just be better as individuals, as fathers, as husbands. I want to take you to a passage where Paul, we don't know if Paul had children or not. Historically, we know that he was married. We don't know if his wife left him after he accepted Christ. Most people think that's what happened uh, per 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but she very well could have passed away. Uh, We just know that Saul was uh, single Uh, for whatever circumstance that came into his life. So Paul understands the family aspect of things. We're not told if he had children, but he understands family life enough to be able to speak into that. And I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 
10 to 12. The first major point that I'd like you to note this morning, men, about being godly is that it's not self-proclaimed, but it's witnessed. Um, I just read an an article last uh, evening about uh, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, who in England was the the impetus for abolishing slave in that, uh, slavery in that country. It was not so much about him as one of the men he had in his life. He said that when he would ever go to this person's house, he would literally fall on his knees and weep for hours. Why? Because the sense of the presence of God and the humility of God was all, all over that man. I just can't imagine that. But it tells me that I can be something greater than I am. And if you think about the greats like William Wilberforce and others who were in the presence of men whose name I can't hardly even remember because he wasn't a great person, um, but yet he had such a profound effect on that individual. You don't go around proclaiming what you are. You go around modeling what you are and people witness that very same thing. So look with me, please, at verse 10. So a godly character is not self-proclaimed. It's witnessed. It's an internal issue. And here's 10. It says that you are what, church? There's the key word for the day. You are witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. He's talking about being in the presence of the church. It's one thing to claim something about yourself. It's quite another for others to observe it. Proverbs 15 and 1 um, talks about um, not patting yourself on the back, but let others do it for you. It's a paraphrase of that verse. But we claim to be followers of Christ, but if we were truly born again, it'll work itself out in our character. It's going to work itself out in our mannerisms, in our speech, in our goals, in our relationships. Basically, every aspect of our lives is going to communicate that there's something different about us. That there's another model in our life, and we don't have to go about braggadociously or proudly proclaiming that. We live it out in such a way that people view that, that people witness that in our life. Our goal is to be recognized as followers of Christ because we emulate or imitate His life, not because we just simply profess it, but we live it out. In divinely imputed holiness. We live it out in divinely given righteousness. We live out godly directed blamelessness. And this is not something we boast in. It's something that we humbly receive from God. I love those directives. Holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness. If you acquire those things, one of the first things that you'll have to admit is that you didn't work for them. Those are charis gifts. Those are grace gifts. Those are gifts that God gives to you. Those are divine attributes. They're communicable, as we say. They're things that God has that in His grace and mercy, He decides to give His creation, His humanity. He gives us holiness. He gives us righteousness. He gives us blamelessness. It's They're not things that we can work towards or or things that we can grasp on our own, but only those things which God, in relationship with Him, can give to us. And that's what Paul said. Paul said, we have these things that God has graciously given to us, holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness. And you've witnessed those things as we've worked among you. 
In verses 11 and 12, we see Paul telling the church that the way he lived out his holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness was in the way that Paul actually treated the church itself. He treated them, and here's the key for today, as a father should or does treat his children. Look at the next verses, if you would, 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with you, action, with each of you as church, a father deals with his own children. And how does a father deal with his own children? He does three things. What does he do? Men, he encourages, he comforts, and he urges you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul, as he went to the Thessalonian believers, he purposed to treat them as a father should treat his children, as godly men should treat children who are growing up in his home. And he points out those three things, encourage, comfort, and urging them to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his heavenly or holy kingdom. The first one we want to look at is this. Unto you, O men, I call, I call you to be men of what? Church. Men of encouragement. Paul and Barnabas took young Mark with them on an adventure of a lifetime. It was their first missionary journey and young Mark bailed on them when things became difficult. And that happens in ministry. You get this rosy-eyed view of jumping into church work and things are going to be wonderful. There's not going to be any problems because we're all godly followers of Jesus. What a lie that is. It doesn't work because even though we're followers of Jesus, we're still broken people and we're still working out our faith in Christ and sometimes we don't work that out very well. And Mark even had the worst Part of this is because he showed up thinking the power of God is on us when we proclaim the message to the, to the Gentiles, to the pagans, and to the Jews. They're going to warmly receive us because we have this wonderful message. And they had a rock concert instead. And when the rock started flying, Mark said, uh, I didn't sign up for this one. I'm heading home. And Paul didn't forget about that. Paul and Barnabas were set to go on journey number two. And Barnabas said, hey, I've talked to Mark. He's ready to go. And Paul said, what? I don't think so. I am not taking that young man. It's interesting that we think of Paul in such high terms. But when we think of Paul... Especially in this circumstance, he was not a man who did what? He didn't encourage. And he didn't easily forgive either. But Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And he saw something in that young man that needed to be brought out. And so Barnabas and Paul split and Barnabas took Mark with him to go on and do ministry, to encourage him. Time would heal and Mark would mature. Mark would later actually serve Paul near the end of his life, but also be the first to write down an account of the life of Jesus because he spent so much time with Peter. 
Paul would say, he's helpful to me or he's useful or he's valuable to me in service. And man, that's what I want to talk to you about very simply. If you want to be a man of encouragement, if, if you want to be a great father, if you want to go to a higher place, it's not that difficult. You just simply need to exercise a gift. And that's the gift before us. You need to exercise the gift of what? Men? Encouragement. It's, it's a very simple gift, by the way. It's just simply saying to people who are around you, I value you. You're helpful to me. If you dissect the word, it means to bring into a place of what? Courage. It's taking children and saying, I know that you can do it. I have faith in you. And even if you don't do it right, it's okay. You tried And try again. You'll be fine. You'll get it. Don't worry. Do you see how simple that is, church? Instead of saying, you're stupid. You're never going to make, you're not going to amount to anything. Give it up. You're not good at that. Those are words that Satan speaks, not godly men. Unto you, O men, I call. I call you to be men of encouragement. Find ways to be able to express courage to those who need it. You can put this in the words of of value as well. I value you. In adult VBS, we've had a a great first week together. And one of the thematic words that keep coming out of those sessions is value. We need to value people. How do we value people who don't know Jesus and communicate that they do have value in Christ? As men, let's figure out how to do that better. And let's figure out how to encourage each other in the process to say, I know you can get to here, men. I know that you think that, that time isn't, uh, isn't on your side, that time is fleeting and you don't have be- between work and family and extracurricular activities. There's no way that you can get here when it comes to God. Let me encourage you, men. You can do it. You can rise up and be better men of God. It just takes a simple word of encouragement and perhaps an extended hand to do so. Be men of courage and instill that in other people. Let me give you the second one, if I could, please. Unto you, O men, I call. I call you to do what? To comfort in times of hardship. I want you to listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. It's a long passage, but I think it's worthy of it. He uses this word over and over and over as he talks to the church. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all what, church? The God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles for what purpose? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It's reciprocating. Whatever God gives to us is not to be meant to hold tightly so that we don't give it. Whatever God gives to us, we're supposed to do what with it, church? Give it out. That's the generosity gift that God gives to us. For just as the sufferings of Christ flowed over into our lives, talking about the benefits of that for the purpose or for the benefit of, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. It has intent. It has purpose. 
If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for this is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. God gives to us certain experiences in life. Sometimes they're hard and sometimes they're joyous, but no matter what it is, we're supposed to share them for the betterment of those who are coming after us. God is a God of all comfort. Gentlemen, per the context, the comfort is not simply a consolation when times are bad. It's proactively directing another individual to the person of Jesus. It's proactively directing each other to a hope-filled passage of, of Scripture. It's conveying the heart of God to a person who's struggling or suffering or about to give up. Church, it's more than saying platitudes and niceties. It's a comfort that transforms. I would like to say it this way. Do you remember the story of Job? Boy, that man suffered, did he not? And he had some good friends. Now, we'd like to run to the end of the story and say, I don't think so. All all they did was criticize him and tell him to repent because clearly he, he did some sort of sin that brought this judgment upon him. However, I don't want you to think about the end. I want you to think about the beginning because this actually is what comfort is all about. Do you remember what those three friends, four friends, actually did? Do you know what the greatest comfort for a person sometimes is? It's just being there. Comfort, most often, is not the gift of word. It's just the gift of presence. It's just being there. Dad, do you want to be a comfort to your kids? Sometimes all it means is what? It's just being there. It's just being present in good times and in bad times. It's just the gift of of your personal Space connecting with theirs. That's all that it is. Encourage. That's word. Comfort. I don't think that's word. I think that's presence. I think it's being there. And being present. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing about being spatially in the same room with your family or your kids. It's another thing to be all in. And be present with your family. Does that make sense, church? We've got a lot of dads who are there, but they're not there. They're not present. And we need to change that. And so, once again, guys, I'm not looking for guilt or shame trip. I'm looking at, once you figure out that, how that works, there's something that happens in the kingdom of God that brings you to a higher place. Because the same thing that your kids and your family Um, and the people you work with and your church need, which is you to be present in all of your person, to be present is the same thing that God desires of you when you come to Him. 
God is fully present, and He wants you to experience what it means to be in the full presence of God. That changes your life. Does anybody know what I'm talking about today? It, it, it brings you from here and the mundaneness of life, of work and home and whatever else you filled your space with. It transforms you from this mundaneness of, is this just, is this all there is? Oh my gosh, take me home to this. Oh my goodness, God, did you see what God just did in my life? Did you see what he did in my kid's life? Did you see what he did in my marriage? Do you see what God did in my workspace? Oh my goodness, I never thought that God would be able to do something like that in the midst of that. That's the difference in all God's men said, please. That's what I'm after. There's something here, men. Rise up, O men of God. And encourage and comfort. Why? It sounds like you're expending yourself. It's like, okay, Pastor Dan is just saying, I need to serve. I get it. Can we go to lunch? It's not time yet. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, if you understand the greater things that God has for you in your spirit, In your relationship with him, if you understand that there's a higher place that God desires of you, it transforms everything else. That's what I'm trying to communicate this morning. Everything changes. Unto you, O men, I call. I call you to do what, church? Urge other men, to live in a manner worthy of God. The Greek word here for urge is a form of a, of a, it's a transliteration for the word martyr. Isn't that interesting? We are to urge each other to live full out for Jesus and not with an optional or partial consideration. Fully committed to Jesus Christ let me ask you this very practical question. If when I got married to Deb, I partially said I do. <laughs> that, would, that should be good enough, isn't it? She's rolling my, her eyes at me right now. Sorry about that. I am in trouble. No, the good thing, though, is I didn't partially commit to her. I fully committed to her. And I don't always do that well. But if I partially committed to marriage, do you see the the problem with that? It means I'm not really going to get the fullness of what the marriage relationship has for me. I'm never really going to understand what oneness with another person is if I'm not full in, if I'm just partially there and partially not. Does that make sense? So what happens to us men when we only partially commit to Christ, when we don't encourage and urge each other as men to fully commit to being followers of Jesus, is is that we're just asking each other to settle and not come to a higher place. That's really what we're after. I want to urge you men to live in a manner worthy of God, full out, fully committed. Why? 
it's not a it's not a pressure issue to do something it's a pressure issue to be something so that you can experience the fullness of God in your life that's really what God is seeking for we're supposed to provoke each other to live in followership of Christ in such a committed and full way that we're perceived as being martyrs Martyrs not in the sense that we desire to literally be killed or that we abandon our responsibilities, but in keeping with the scriptures of dying to oneself and letting Christ live in us. Those of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the, the 20th century pastor who lived during the time of Nazi Germany, he said this, it's an amazing quote, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. There's a higher calling men, one that yields to blessings that very few have been blessed to acquire, but nonetheless offered to each and every one of us today. I'm not satisfied with partially following Christ. Are you? I don't want that in my life. Why? I know there's greater things that God has for me. I know there's more open doors ahead of me, and if I'm partially committed to Christ, I'll never get through them. I don't want to live a life of regret. I want to live a life of full-on, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Remember that old song? That's what we need to strive for, men, because there's something greater in your life. There's a transformation that you've yet to have that makes the mundane come alive that makes getting up and going to work every day significantly different. You get up with a new way of thinking about it. it. It makes you look at your spouse differently and your children differently and serving in your church differently. There's something greater, there's something higher, men, that God is calling us to. There's a deeper blessing with God. And we're never going to get there, by the way, if we don't urge each other to live in a manner that's worthy of that, of that following after God in our life. Men in keeping with Robert Moffat in Psalm 8, unto you, O men, I call. I call you to live holy but practical lives, righteous and blameless. I call you to be men who encourage others in their walk with the Lord, who give courage to others, to your children, to your wife, to your co-workers. I call you to comfort others by pointing them to Jesus and to his sufferings, by being present when you're present. I call you to urge other men to come and die for Christ. We have a high calling from God, men. Let us rise to the occasion and be what God has designed us to be. Determine in your heart to do so because there is something higher and something greater that God has for us. His hands are extended. All we need to do is take them and he'll get us where we need to be. And all God's people said, please. That's what we're called to do. Let us close in prayer, shall we?